Welcome to an exciting forum of alternative viewpoints and balanced ideas. This is Good Morning Canada with Nav and Nav. That's Nav C and Nav M. Confused? Don't be, because two halves always become one. Now join us for an energized hour of global viewpoints and shared ideas, only for you. Now, here are your hosts, Nav and Nav. Hello and welcome to Good Morning Canada. I'm your host, Nav M. Welcome to another hour of Alternative Views. This show will help you rethink, reshape and reform ongoing narratives. From the period 2001 to 2005, over a quarter of all countries in the world cooperated in a secret rendition network that enabled the transfer of terrorist suspects to undisclosed detention sites. And this was confirmed in a 2013 report by the Open Society Foundations. And the report was entitled Globalizing Torture, CIA Secret Detention and Extraordinary Rendition. And this report showed that as many as 54 foreign governments participated in these operations in different ways, including hosting CIA prisons on their soil, use of detentions, interrogation, torture and abuse of individuals, assisting in the capture and transport of detainees, permitting the use of domestic airspace and airports for secret flights to transport detainees, and also providing intelligence which led to the secret detention and interrogation of many individuals to protect detainees from secret detention and extraordinary rendition on their territories. And some of these countries include Australia, Belgium, Canada, Finland, Hong Kong, Iceland, South Africa, Sweden, Turkey and the United Kingdom. By engaging in torture and other abuses, the U.S. government not only violated domestic and international law, but left its moral standing on the world stage in ruins. Overall, it eroded support for its counterterrorism efforts worldwide as these abuses came to light. And by enlisting the participation of foreign governments, the United States undermined long-standing human rights protections enshrined in international law, including the norm against torture. And responsibility for this damage lies not only with the United States, but also with numerous foreign governments, without which secret detention and extraordinary rendition operations could not have been made possible. So let's first examine the context of these violations using the scope of international law. And to the majority of people, torture and abuse against other human beings is considered to be wrong and wholly inappropriate. These beliefs are largely derived from an individual sense of morality, ethics and a basic understanding of international law. Indeed, the human rights movement grew out of the disasters and atrocities committed during the Second World War and still form the basis of international law, theory and practice. And in the early post-war period, international law made significant strides in trying to protect war victims and safeguard their treatment during of a legal apparatus to promote universal human rights, whether in times of peace or war. And three of the most important human rights conventions are firstly, the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. Secondly, the European Convention on Human Rights. 
and thirdly, the American Convention on Human Rights. Indeed, the very foundation of international humanitarian law can be traced back to the first Geneva Convention of 1864, which aimed to protect individuals in all circumstances. New conventions were drawn up later in the aftermath of the Second World War to reflect the changing nature of warfare, in particular the Third and Fourth Conventions, which cover prisoners of war and civilian victims respectively. Equally, though, the enjoyment of certain human rights may be restricted under special circumstances during times of war or public emergency. And often war is the greatest public emergency and naturally will affect the entire nation. So it's these special circumstances during wartime that we now turn our attention to. The starting point is the aftermath of 9-11. Following the events of September the 11th, 2001, President George W. Bush signed a classified memorandum authorizing the Central Intelligence Agency, CIA, to commence a covert detention program to seize and detain suspected terrorists. These individuals were held in CIA prisons known as black sites outside the borders of the United States. The program was responsible for the detention and in interrogation of numerous detainees, where they were subjected to horrific torture and various types of abuse. The program was implemented through a series of legal memorandum designed to immunize CIA agents from criminal liability. The language employed had been carefully crafted by the Department of Justice using clinical legal terminology, but ambiguous definitions of the techniques used with the clear aim of disguising the extent of abuse. In addition, President Bush also granted the CIA vast authority to engage in extraordinary rendition, which is defined by Amnesty International as the transfer without legal process of a detainee to the custody of a foreign government for purposes of detention and interrogation. This distinction between Secret detention, which places detainees in CIA custody, whereas extraordinary rendition places detainees in foreign government custody. But the two programs had similar operations and entailed the same types of human rights violations, the abduction and disappearance of detainees, their extra-legal transfer on secret flights to undisclosed locations around the world, followed by torture and abuse. Both programs were highly classified and conducted outside the United States and designed to place detainee interrogations beyond the reach of law. Torture was central to both. Kofa Black, who was director of the CIA's counterterrorism center on September the 11th, said in a subsequent Senate Select Committee on Intelligence in 2002, quote, There was before 9-11 and after 9-11. After 9-11, the gloves came off, end quote. Under the secret detention program, the CIA subjected detainees to enhanced interrogation methods involving torture and abuse in secret locations removed from public and judicial scrutiny. Extraordinary rendition was intended to outsource abusive interrogations, as one U.S. official recalled, who was directly involved in rendering captives into foreign hands in a Washington Post article dated December 26, 2002. 
quote, we don't kick the beep out of them. We send them to other countries so they can kick the beep out of them, end quote. After 9-11, the CIA sought to extract information on possible terrorist activities by torturing suspects. The U.S. bypassed various human rights treaties by extraditing suspects to third countries such as Egypt, Syria, Jordan, Yemen, and Uzbekistan. And that's because in these countries, human rights protection is poor, and there is a documented history of torture techniques being used during interrogations. These extraditions have been referred to as CIA torture flights by journalists Ian Cobain and Ben Quinn in a Guardian newspaper article dated 31st August 2011. Officially, they are called Extraordinary Rendition Flights, or ERFs, comprising the transfer of an individual to a country where they will face interrogation on potential terrorist acts. But even more distressing is the fact that the individual has no possibility of a legal proceeding to challenge the transfer. And yet, under international human rights law, the principle of non-refoulement guarantees that no one should be returned to a country where they would face torture, cruelty, punishment, inhuman or degrading treatment, or irreparable harm, as laid down by UNHRC principles, which date back to 1977. However, these principles were evaded by the US and their host countries through diplomatic assurances that the detainee would not be ill-treated. Consequently, the bypassing of human rights through ERFs became a trademark of the war on terror. Furthermore, international cooperation had to be secured from NATO and other global allies in the so-called war on terror. This meant that the CIA worked closely with a range of countries because deploying aircraft requires the use of other nations' airspace and airports. This inevitably meant that other governments were passively involved in the implementation of ERFs, which raises serious questions about complicity in torture. So at this point, we can ask, has anything changed in US policy towards detention or rendition more than two decades after the events of 9-11? Well, in reality, the American public only has a vague understanding of CIA excesses committed to justify the the so-called war on terror. These covert activities form a murky image of a clandestine agency manipulating its government and deceiving its own citizens to propagate a new model of torture throughout the world. But responsibility for these violations does not end solely with the United States because these human rights abuses would not have been possible without the active participation of foreign governments. Moreover, the legacy of rendition and detention was simply parceled on to the next presidential administration under Barack Obama. The election of President Obama was touted as a fundamental change in direction for U.S. foreign policy following eight years of preemptive military strikes under the neoconservative administration of George W. Bush. Instead, the Obama White House referred to the controversial policy of rendition as wholly appropriate, and rather than rejecting the Bush doctrine, it laid a new course for U.S. foreign policy, whereby clandestine detention or rendition operations formed key components of its solution to international terrorism. 
So it should come as no surprise that even under the next president, Donald Trump, his first CIA director, Mike Pompeo, effectively confirmed in the early days of the administration that rendition will be an available policy. Under Pompeo and his later successor, Gina Haspin, in 2018, the CIA has continued to conduct rendition transfers of prisoners to foreign countries by simply seeking diplomatic assurances that torture will not occur. But again, this shouldn't surprise anyone because the United States government has been active in the rendition business for decades, long before George W. Bush entered the White House in 2001. And as we progress through the course of this episode, I will set out the origins of the rendition program and how it evolved during the post-war period. In particular, how successive administrations in the White House simply perpetuated a revolving door policy inherited from their presidential predecessors. But first, let's briefly examine the rationale of torture and how individuals are tortured for intelligence. At first glance, it seems the Bush administration suggesting that they were dealing with a unique situation following the events of 9-11 is valid, especially given the immediate aftermath in terms of domestic and international response. The official government response from the Bush administration was that a heightened situation which involves national security requires morals and ethics to be set aside to focus on the greater good. In other words, the ends justify the means. The use of torture techniques because it was trying to prevent future terrorist attacks. And it did so in collaboration with various nation states, key among them Poland, Lithuania, Romania, and Thailand, which facilitated torture by hosting the extraordinary rendition programs in black sites. And this was corroborated by the Senate Intelligence Committee study of the CIA's detention program published in December 2014. So it's almost certain that those nation states involved either actively or passively were fully aware of the existence of black sites and what actually occurred there. But the fact that so many states agreed to host secret sites paints a grim picture of the state consistent with what many commentators observed about human rights at the time. Though they are only respected provided they do not conflict with national security interests. Furthermore, there is a wealth of documented information going back centuries which confirms that torturing detainees to extract information simply does not work. One such example on the psychology of torture goes back to 1631, when a Jesuit priest named Friedrich Spey published a book entitled Corsio Criminalis, which played a key role in bringing about the end of witch hunts and inquisitions which had dogged European society for centuries. He demonstrated that using torture as a tool to obtain information doesn't work because people will reach a point where they will say anything to stop the pain and distress. And in a 2014 study in the journal Applied Cognitive Psychology entitled The Who, What and Why of Human Intelligence Gathering, the study surveyed 152 interrogators and found that rapport and relationship building techniques were far more effective compared to torture techniques. Furthermore, the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence analyzed millions of internal CIA documents 
relating to the torture of terrorism suspects and concluded that the enhanced interrogation techniques were not an effective means of acquiring intelligence or gaining cooperation from detainees. It concluded that, quote, multiple CIA detainees fabricated information resulting in faulty intelligence, end quote. So let's now begin to explore the full extent of rendition. Firstly, it's important to remember that the rendition policies as practiced by the United States are not new concepts and their justification and implementation have fluctuated over the years. Ever since the 1800s, the United States has rendered criminal suspects from overseas to be tried in the U.S., However, rendition in the modern era was originally implemented to address the challenge of the U.S. faced in the apprehension of suspects, specifically foreign countries, with which it had no bilateral extradition treaty. For instance, where the treaty was suspended or in which there was little or no law enforcement. And during a speech in 2005 at Andrews Air Base, On the 5th of December 2005, then-Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice acknowledged that, quote, for decades the United States and other countries have used renditions to transport terrorist suspects from the country where they were captured to their home country or to other countries where they can be. Similarly, President Reagan authorized a rendition operation to apprehend the suspects believed to have been responsible for the 1983 bombing of the U.S. Marine barracks in Beirut. And by the 1990s, such operations were becoming routine, as evidenced by the United States Counterterrorism Security Group, headed by Richard A. Clarke. He provides ample details of this in his 2004 best-selling book, Against All Enemies, Inside America's War on Terror. At the time, government officials openly acknowledged what was then referred to as the Rendition to Justice Program, which delivered suspects to U.S. jurisdiction and offered them legal representation and due process. At this stage, rendition was an enhanced form of extradition, a policy that would bring suspects to the United States to stand trial in an American court offering full legal protection. But the widely held belief is that this approach to rendition remained in place until being radically transformed after the 9-11 events, essentially into a new policy of extraordinary rendition, which contravened the Convention Against Torture and which Amnesty Amnesty International referred to as, quote, benign characterization designed to conceal the truth about a system that puts the victim beyond the protection of the law and sets the perpetrator above it, end quote. Along with the infamous abuses at Abu Ghraib prison in Iraq, which were reported in 2004, and the reports of waterboarding and enhanced interrogation at CIA black sites, this policy of extraordinary rendition contributed to an impression of the White House fighting a war with methods that were at odds with America's highest ideals. These policies were demonstrated to many observers in the existence of an administration whose right to power became questionable and saw the events of 9-11 simply as an opportunity for redress. Furthermore, 
let's not forget that long before it was revealed to the general public, the Clinton administration was already engaged in policies that amounted to extraordinary rendition. For all intents and purposes, a war on terror was already being waged by the United States prior to the election of George Bush, using methods which contradicted the values that the administration claimed to be defending. And by the mid-1990s, the Clinton administration was active in transporting suspects to third-party countries where they were interrogated, tortured, and even executed. Under George W. Bush, what happened was the scope of the operation simply widened and the legal constraints were loosened. But interviews with the the top echelons of the Clinton administration reveal a White House already at loggerheads with the Al-Qaeda network. At home as well as abroad, the Clinton administration was fighting a war that would go unnoticed by many until the events of 9-11. And although the initial practice of covertly bringing suspects to the United States to stand trial differed from the policy that emerged after 9-11, it was still the pretext for things to come. And crucial to an understanding of the initial rendition initiative is recognition that the program began as a practice intended to facilitate the judicial process. It was never designed to extract information, but instead to dismantle terrorist cells overseas. And it's here that we arrive at a fundamental juncture in this episode, that of how rendition evolved over time. Was it really frustration derived from the lack of domestic legal options by one administration to the next? Or was it actually a logical progression, an efficient process which developed over time into the well-oiled machinery that we know of today? Essentially an orchestrated procedure designed to outsource torture. And as we shall discover in the remainder of this episode, the CIA's ghoulish system of torture had indeed been perfected since the early Cold War period, several decades before the events of 9-11. Hence, the road to rendition was a very long path. And to most observers, the Bush administration was clearly responsible for creating an expanded program of rendition and secret prisons, as well as aggressively pursuing precise killings of high-value targets. For many commentators, this policy acquired dark overtones because torture became a primary goal and not just a collateral consequence. But when we examine this conclusion more closely, it appears to be somewhat inaccurate because the authorization of kidnapping and forcible abductions were in fact a long-established policy of the CIA. This is because under previous administrations, dating back to the early post-war period, the clandestine forces of the United States were already engaged in taking suspects from one country to another, where they would be abused. But in the majority of cases, the desired aim was obtaining suspects for prosecution. Although the nature of the operation changed after 9-11 by obtaining suspects for interrogation, it's clear that this approach or model was indeed part of the established policies of previous administrations. And we can now focus on this intriguing area of covert policy, which bore the following hallmarks, the abuse of executive power, sidelining Congress and disdain for anyone who raised the flag of civil liberties. So let's now begin to examine the true extent of CIA involvement in torture policies. 
The origins of prisoner abuse scandals, which surfaced in media channels post 9-11, can be traced back to CIA torture techniques, which were developed by the U.S. intelligence community as far back as 70 years ago, during the earliest period of the Cold War. Its hallmarks entail a conflicting U.S. foreign policy, which publicly opposed torture, but simultaneously promoted covert practices. Ultimately, these practices have shaped the American response to UN treaties and anti-torture statutes. The CIA's research efforts began in the 1950s by developing a radically new model of psychological torture, and for the next 30 years it was exported wholesale to its global allies. After the events of 9-11, the US media had already pacified a captive global audience with a public consensus for torture. Meanwhile, the Bush administration began its campaign of attack against al-Qaeda using the CIA's distinctive brand of psychological torture. And outwardly, psychological torture was presented as a less brutal approach, almost as a torture light option. But this seemingly innocuous approach would eventually lead to devastating domestic and international consequences. Because in April 2004, the American public was horrified when the CBS news channel broadcast photographs from Abu Ghraib prison showing Iraqis stripped naked, hooded with black bags and contorted in degrading positions while US soldiers smiled and posed for photographs. As the scandal made global headlines, Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld assured Congress that the abuse was perpetrated by a small number of U.S. military. In reality, what these grotesque photos displayed was not just highlights of raw brutality or evidence of a breakdown in discipline, but CIA torture techniques which had developed and spread over the past 70 years like a rampant disease inside the U.S. intelligence community. A close examination of this 70-year period of history leads us to the conclusion that the CIA was the lead agency at Abu Ghraib, enlisting, as it often has, the U.S. Army intelligence to support its mission. Indeed, these photographs from Abu Ghraib illustrated standard interrogation practice from inside a global network of secret CIA prisons that have operated on executive authority since the start of the so-called war on terror. And the seven soldiers facing courts martial for the abuse at Abu Ghraib were simply following orders and the responsibility for their actions lay much higher up the chain of command. And at a deeper level, the controversy of Abu Ghraib is a stark reminder of the United States policy of double standards towards torture, which has been evident since the start of the Cold War at the UN and other international forums. Washington is vocal in its opposition to torture by advocating a universal standard for human rights. However, the CIA direct contravention of these standards has actively propagated torture during the past several decades. And what's more, the agency's attempt to conceal these programs from later executive and legislative review has meant that it operated covertly through clandestine techniques such as disinformation and the destruction of incriminating documents. So in the next section, because we're just coming up to a short break now, we'll begin to examine the CIA's history of torture techniques by focusing first on the early Cold War period. See you soon in the next segment. 
Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Good Morning Canada with Nav and Nav. To find out more about us and the ideas behind our show, visit our website at gmc-radio.com. That's gmc-radio.com. Now, back to Good Morning Canada. Welcome back. You're listening to Good Morning Canada with your host, Navem. It's great to have your company. So in the last segment, we've just begun um, to delve into our examination of the CIA's history of torture techniques. So in the decade after World War II, there were competing priorities within Washington's foreign policy agenda, and it produced a sharp contradiction between a public commitment to human rights and covert torture research. So from 1950 to 1962, the CIA carried out secret research on a massive scale into coercion and human consciousness, conducting experiments with hallucinogenic drugs, electric shocks, and sensory deprivation. This research produced a new method of torture that was psychological, not physical, perhaps best described as no-touch torture. The CIA's discovery represented a revolutionary breakthrough in the black arts of inflicting cruelty. Their findings represented the pinnacle of a perverse science which spanned almost 2,000 years of torture. And under the pressures of the Cold War, the CIA developed torture techniques that were a fusion of ancient and modern methods. Through basic research into human psychology in the 1950s, they carried out experiments on human subjects in South Vietnam during the 1960s and refinement in the 1970s. The CIA made what was arguably the most important advances in the practice of torture. But as any student of the macabre will know, torture is not a new concept because it's already been used for over 2,000 years by interrogators, including the ancient Greeks, Imperial Rome, religious inquisitions in medieval Europe during the 14th to 15th centuries, as well as religious and judicial torture during the 16th and 17th centuries. But by the time of the Industrial Revolution, judicial evaluation of evidence had taken over and replaced forced confessions, leading to the abolition of torture across Europe by the end of the 18th century. 
But this was a short respite because in the years following World War I, rival authoritarian states such as Nazi Germany and Stalin Soviet Union revived the practice of torture. So let's now examine the origins of the CIA's torture research. America's first foray with torture came ironically through early battle with its proponents. To fight fascism during World War II, the United States created the Office of Strategic Services, or OSS. And this was employed at the end of the war to gather Nazi scientists who could assist in its battle against the Soviet Union. And this included individuals who had directed Nazi experiments into human physiology and psychology. Under Operation Paperclip, the American agent Boris Pash recruited Nazi scientists such as Dr. Kurt Plotner, the same person who attested mesaline, which is a hallucinogenic hallucinogenic drug on Jewish prisoners. After the OSS was replaced by the CIA in 1947, the new agency continued Nazi-inspired experiments with LSD for interrogation of suspected spies and double agents. And as the Iron Curtain came down across Europe in 1948, the human mind was seen as a key Cold War battleground. But from its founding in 1947, the CIA was perturbed by the Soviet ability to extract public confessions through the use of new techniques, including psychosurgery, shock methods, or psychoanalytic methods. And this was confirmed a few years later as, as public confessions by American soldiers. And in response to this communist challenge, the CIA would spend several billion dollars over the next decade to probe two key aspects of human consciousness, the mechanisms of mass persuasion and the effects of coercion upon individual consciousness. This complex and chaotic mind control project had two goals. Firstly, improved psychological warfare to influence whole societies and interrogation techniques uh, to improve interrogation techniques for targeted individuals. And gradually, both of these strands diverged. Psychological warfare research explored mass persuasion through the U.S. Information Agency. In contrast, interrogation research, which probed the influence of drugs, electrical shock, and sensory deprivation upon individual moved inside the intelligence bureaucracy and the laboratories of its medical allies. U.S. national security agencies were determined to go ahead, head-to-head, -head, with whatever means necessary. So, for instance, if Moscow had the KGB, Washington would respond with the CIA. If Russian scientists manipulated human behavior, then their American counterparts would do the same. So essentially, after 150 years without a clandestine service, the U.S. government passed the National Security Act in July 1947, creating both the National Security Council as a top-level executive agency and the CIA as its instrument, effectively removing foreign intelligence from congressional control in the Cold War crisis. So the next area to explore is the rise of what was known as MKUltra. MKUltra was a top-secret CIA project in which the agency conducted hundreds of clandestine experiments, sometimes even on unwitting U.S. citizens in, in public places such as cinemas to assess the potential use of LSD and other drugs for mind control, information gathering and psychological torture. The project began in 1953 and ended abruptly in 1973. 
when then CIA director Richard Helms, fearing a damaging expose, determ terminated the project and destroyed all the possible files. And the full detail 75 during a congressional investigation into widespread illegal CIA activities within the United States and around the world. But by now, the CIA's mind control research had moved through two distinct phases. Firstly, esoteric, often these were often bizarre experiments with hallucinogenic drugs from 1950 to 1956. And second, more conventional research into human psychology until 1963, when the agency finally produced its first basic interrogation manual. And more than a decade of research and field trials, the CIA issued a report in 1963 entitled KUBARK, that's spelt K-U-B-A-R-K, Counterintelligence Interrogation, and this report was unique because its findings would define the agency's interrogation methods and would be propagated throughout the third world for the next 40 years. The report's fundamental hypothesis was that successful interrogation, coercive and non-coercive, involves Quote, a method of inducing regression of the personality to whatever earlier and weaker level is required for the dissolution of resistance and the inculcation of dependence, end quote. Kubark formulated non-coercive techniques such as the, the constant manipulation of time by retarding and advancing clocks and serving meals at odd times. This would likely drive the individual deeper and deeper within themselves until they were no longer able to control their responses in a coherent fashion. The principal techniques for coercive interrogation were arrest, detention, deprivation of sensory stimuli through solitary confinement, threats and fear, dehabilitation, pain, hypnosis, narcosis and induced regression. By applying the Kubark manual in Asia and Latin America, the CIA developed a two-stage method of psychological torture designed to make victims cooperate with their investigators. In the method's first stage, interrogators employed simple non-violent techniques to disorient the subject, such as hooding or sleep denial. And to intensify disorientation, interrogators used attacks on personal identity, often involving sexual humiliation. To render these threats credible, interrogators would inflict physical pain through beatings, electrical shock, or more elaborate methods. Once the subject was disoriented, interrogators could move on to the second stage, which was self-inflicted discomfort, such as standing for hours with arms extended. In this latter phase, the idea was to make victims feel responsible for their own pain and thus induce them to alleviate it by capitulating. So let's now look at the highly controversial issues surrounding the Vietnam and human subjects. From 1962 to 1974, the CIA worked through the Office of Public Safety, OPS, which was a division of the United States Agency for International Development, or USAID, by assigning public safety advisors to police forces in developing nations. The v Vietnam War was the ultimate test of the CIA's mind control program because it allowed the agency to overcome the shortage of human subjects that had hindered their research previously. OPS advisors had tried unsuccessfully to transform Vietnamese police into an effective counterinsurgency force, but this failure led the CIA on a campaign to bring havoc to the Viet Cong fighters. 
And this vision of deadly counter-terror, both psychological and physical, launched the CIA towards the infamous Phoenix program. Phoenix and its allied programs allowed the CIA to continue its more extreme research into the effects of coercion on the human mind. No longer were they restricted to isolated drug trials or simulated psychology experiments. The CIA was now operating a nationwide network of interrogation centers through through Vietnam that used torture to generate intelligence. And under this program, the CIA gained a limitless supply of human subjects. The Phoenix program was designed primarily to neutralize popular Vietnamese support for the National Liberation Front through recruitment, bribery, spying, blackmail and torture. Though assassination was not the desired outcome, the program's primary purpose was to turn as many of the enemy as possible. In other words, spy for us or you will be publicly identified as an informer. And its main methods of gathering intelligence were revenge, bribery, blackmail, threats, rape, and brutal torture, which often led to death. So undoubtedly, the Phoenix program hurt the U.S. occupation of Vietnam because by its own estimates, there were around 82,000 Vietnamese that were neutralized. And it exacerbated an already fearful atmosphere, making more Vietnamese hate the occupying U.S. forces. And there were many cases of abuse by corrupt officers within Phoenix and also local officials demanding bribes. The innocent were often falsely accused by those setting, settling personal scores and a quota system was used to encourage such practices. The exposure of Phoenix was a huge blow to U.S. credibility, making the U.S. government forces appear as brutal as the communists they were claiming to free the Vietnamese from. So in our next section, let's focus on the CIA's intervention in Chile. And this action by the CIA during the 1970s remains one of the most controversial episodes in the history of American foreign policy. Political commentators have frequently analyzed Chile, highlighting the paradox of the use of covert action by one democracy to intervene in the democratic process of another country. Even pragmatists who see covert action as a normal tool of the state view Chile as a disturbing episode of state bungling which has essentially tainted the CIA's image at home and abroad ever since. And key questions include did the CIA engineer the coup that overthrew the first democratically elected Marxist leader Salvador Allende? And what role did Chile play in the wider context of the Cold War? The US campaign in Chile is earmarked by four separate episodes of alleged covert action that dominate the body of thoughts on the, on this issue. Firstly, the attempt to foster a military coup to prevent Salvador Allende taking office, the murder of the commander-in-chief of the Chilean army, General René Schneider, the economic destabilization of the Chilean economy, the plotting and execution of the 1973 coup that removed Allende from power. And these key points have framed the Chilean coup as a classic example of hidden hand intervention during the Cold War. So the next area we examine is the CIA and the Shah of Iran secret police. The CIA was instrumental in launching the 1953 coup which ousted Iran's elected Prime Minister Mohammad Mossadegh, eventually restoring the Shah to direct rule. 
And in the decades that followed, the CIA was instrumental in helping the Shah consolidate his grip on power. By 1959, U.S. advisors were closely involved in the reorganization of the Iranian secret police. In particular, the CIA helped establish the Shah's dreaded secret police unit, the SABAK, and trained its interrogators in methods reminiscent of German torture techniques from dissidents holding close to 50,000 political prisoners in detention centers. And after the Shah fell from power in 1979, Savak's torture methods and the CIA's role were heavily publicized both in Iran and the United States. So in the next section, let's focus on the training of Filipino torturers. In the Mid-1980s, a democratic uprising in the Philippines toppled an entrenched dictator, President Ferdinand Marcos, and plunged the country into four years of abortive coup attempts by the military. This instability exposed the corrosive effects of the CIA psychological torture model, which had become a key instrument under the authoritarian rule of President Marcos's military officers. But the CIA's psychological torture had a far-reaching effect because it corrupted the perpetrators who administered torture, in particular the young officers of the Philippine Constabulary who carried out these orders and came to personify the violence of Marcos's rule. They formed an elite group called RAM, or Reform the the Armed Forces Movement, or RAM for short, and then spent a decade plotting to seize state power. RAM plotted a coup d'etat against Marcos in 1986, but failed to take power. Then five more coups were launched against his successor, Corazine Aquino. And in the example of the Philippines, what we see is the CIA's psychological torture. It proved particularly damaging because it broke down military discipline and led to political instability, eventually leading to the downfall of the regime. And it was designed to the downfall of the regime that it was designed to defend. Once again, the CIA ignored the long-term impact of its torture training and showed no cognizance of its role in destabilizing another key American ally in circumstances very similar to Iran. So let's move on to Latin America and the CIA torture manual. At the height of the Cold War in the 1970s and 1980s, the CIA trained military interrogators in Latin America, propagating and legitimizing the use of torture that became the hallmark of the region's military dictatorships. The CIA initially began working through U.S. military advisors to train the region's armed forces, with the help of a unique document aptly named the CIA's Human Resources Exploitation Manual 1983. And this 1983 manual provides details of a clear continuity between CIA training in Latin America and the agency's original 1963 Kubark interrogation handbook. At the outset, the Anonymous CIA instructors emphasized that this manual will explain two types of psychological techniques, the coercive and the non-coercive. The CIA trainers stated that the purpose of all coercive techniques is to induce psychological regression in the subject. So at this stage, having reviewed the various accounts of historical CIA involvement, this brings us neatly to the torture debate in the aftermath of 9-11, specifically the, the CIA's involvement at Abu Ghraib prison. In the early days after the events of 9-11, 
the Bush administration moved quickly to make torture Washington's central weapon in the war on terror. President Bush ordered the detention of al-Qaeda suspects under such conditions as the Secretary of Defense may prescribe, effectively denying these detainees access to any court without U.S. or international And on January 11, 2002, as the first captives from Afghanistan arrived at the Pentagon's Guantanamo Detention Center in Cuba, Secretary of of Defense Rumsfeld denied them legal status as prisoners of war, stating, quote, unlawful combatants do not have any rights under the Geneva Convention, end quote. However, a... February 2004 Red Cross report offers a unique insight into U.S. interrogation techniques, both psychological and physical, which was strikingly similar to the methods recommended in early CIA torture manuals. Throughout the months of harsh interrogation in late 2003, the International Committee of the Red Cross, ICRC, made 29 unannounced visits to U.S. detention facilities across Iraq, and in their visits to Abu Ghraib, several U.S. officers told the ICRC that, quote, it was part of the military intelligence process to hold a person naked in complete darkness and in an empty cell for a prolonged period of time and to use inhumane, degrading treatment, including physical and psychological coercion, end quote. In words that were lifted almost verbatim from past CIA interrogation manuals, the ICRC detailed the various forms of abuse that U.S. military intelligence were using to extract information from Iraqi detainees. These included hooding, to prevent people from seeing and to disorient them and also to prevent them from breathing freely, beatings with hard objects, including pistols and rifles, threats of ill treatment, reprisals against family members, imminent execution, being stripped naked for several days while being held in solitary confinement, being paraded naked outside their cells in front of other people, being attacked repeatedly over several days for several hours each time with handcuffs to the bars of their cells, in humiliating and or in uncomfortable positions to cause maximum physical pain being forced to remain for prolonged periods in stress positions such as squatting or standing with or without the arms lifted. So the Red Cross medical staff reported that these prisoners were suffering from, quote, memory problems, verbal expression difficulties, incoherent speech, acute anxiety and suicidal tendencies, end quote. In sum, the ICRC concluded that these part- practices are prohibited under international humanitarian law. So let's start wrapping up with some concluding remarks. The human rights violations associated with CIA secret detention and extraordinary renditions were significant and methodical. But the United States and most of its partner governments have yet to meaningfully acknowledge their role in perpetrating those violations. And to this day, the United States has still not repudiated the unlawful practice of extraordinary rendition. And only time will tell how the current CIA director will approach this highly controversial Bill Burns was officially sworn in as director of the CIA on March the 19th, 2021. 
In the months following the release of the Abu Ghraib photos, the United States moved quickly to minimize the damage caused by issuing euphemisms to the effect that U.S. forces were carrying out interrogation in depth. It was also justified on the grounds that it was necessary or effective. But in 2004, the release of the Fay report, which investigated the role of military intelligence, blamed not only the so-called bad apples, but the interrogation procedures at Abu Ghraib. And when trying to establish the, the source of these deviant practices, the Fay report blamed the disregard of military procedures by CIA interrogators. But it's through these photographs interrogation techniques that the U.S. intelligence community has propagated and practiced for over 70 years. Similarly, in its desperate search for security, the U.S has continued its clandestine torture of terror suspects in the hope of gaining just one more piece of valuable information, hopefully not suffering the consequences of negative publicity. And in the event that Washington continues the same decades-old strategy under current CIA director, the decision will be based on two false assumptions. First, the torturers can be controlled and that news of their work can be uh, contained. Secondly, disguising sensory deprivation as no-touch torture. This is essentially a dangerous path to embark on because it heightens the sense of empowerment of the interrogator. This form of torture leaves deep psychological scars both on victims and interrogators. And these procedures have led to unimaginable cruelties, physical and sexual, that were often horrific and barely effective. Interestingly, even prison... Every complex has its own pain masters who try to take to the task with sadistic flair. And just as interrogators are often seduced by a dark, empowering sense of dominance over victims, so the superiors also succumb to the idea of torture as an all-powerful weapon of control. And among all the practices of the modern state, torture is the least understood, the least rational, and the one that seduces its practitioners with fantasies of power and dominance through a muddled and chaotic process at the height of the Cold War created a covert tool that the executive could deploy at times of extraordinary crisis, whether in South Vietnam during the 1960s or Iraq in 2003. Ironically, in battling communism, the United States adopted some of its most heinous practices, subversion abroad, repression at home and torture. Torture is a powerfully seductive force, there's no doubt about it. So much so that its perpetrators refuse in defiance of evidence and rationality to recognize its limited utility and high political cost. All modern states that sanction torture, even in a limited way, run the risk of becoming indiscriminate in its application. And it seems that the United States has paid a very high price for American exceptionalism. The idea that America is too noble, too special, too proud to obey international treaties like the Torture Convention. And this is largely because for most of the United States, it has cultivated an image of being a paragon of virtue. Torture was always something the enemy did and their doing so was widely regarded as proof of their unrighteous and evil existence. And this has proved to be a fabricated myth which resurfaces in cyclical fashion to convince each new generation of the sanctity of American values. For instance, Native American Indians were massacred but not tortured. These Koreans were all killed in great numbers but they were never tortured.
And finally, I'd like to end today's episode by referencing author and intellectual Edward Said from his 2003 article, The Academy of Legado. Its original purpose was commentary on the recklessness of the 2003 Iraq war, but could easily be applied to the futility of the CIA's torture techniques. Quote, it was all about imperial arrogance, unschooled in worldliness, unfettered either by competence or experience, undeterred by history or human complexity, unrepentant in its violence and the cruelty of its technology, end quote. And that's all we have time for in today's episode. Many thanks for listening to Good Morning Canada. I really appreciated your company today. If you have any comments or on any of the issues discussed in today's show, you can send feedback by emailing us from our Voice America host site. Thanks so much for listening. I will see you next time, Wednesdays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 noon Eastern. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to Good Morning Canada. Please join NAVC and NAVM for another great program next Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time and 12 noon Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you soon.